Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another. Which of them it could be who was going to do this? This is the word of the Lord. So these verses tell us uh, about Jesus' last meal about Jesus' last earthly meal before he's put to death on a Roman cross a couple of thousand years ago. This meal is famously known as the Last Supper. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've probably seen da Vinci's painting of it. You've probably heard of this meal. It's the Last Supper because it's the last meal of Jesus, but it's also, at the same time, the institution, the beginning of the most important meal that we share together as Christians, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or communion. So that's going to be our topic this morning. And I want to begin by asking you a question. If our church, if our church stopped celebrating communion tomorrow, what difference would that make in your life? If we never celebrated communion again in worship, what difference would that make in your life? I wonder if you've ever considered communion from that perspective. What exactly is happening when we come to this table each week? Why do we do it every week? Is it it doing anything? Is it doing anything in our lives? You know, of course, I'm a pastor, so I've got to give you the answer. Uh, The answer is yes. It's a profound yes. Yes, it would make a massive difference for the worse in your life if we stopped celebrating communion at Christ Church. In fact, it's not a stretch at all to say that the most important thing that happens here every week is you hearing the word and then you receiving the word made visible at the table. Communion is essential, actually, for your spiritual life. Listen to Henri Nouwen. He writes this, The Eucharist is the heart and center of being the church. Without it, there is no people of God, no community of faith, no church. This is the next to last week in this Meals with Jesus series. I find it so fascinating that Jesus eats a meal right before his death this week. And then next week, he eats a meal right after his resurrection. He continues to use food and drink to teach us, to teach us about himself and to teach us about his love. And of course, the main way he does this is through the supper, through this 
communion meal. So I want to explore with you this morning, using these verses from Luke, the meaning of the Lord's Supper by looking at four points from this story. You can maybe think of it as four directions, four directions that the Lord's Supper looks. That'll be our outline today. We'll see the Lord's Supper looks backward, downward, forward, and outward. Backward, downward, forward, outward. I'm probably going to confuse that three to four times in the next 20 minutes, but I'm going to do my best. So first, the Lord's Supper looks backward. One of the most obvious things about those first few verses that Luke uh, wrote for us, where Jesus tells Peter and John to go and prepare the meal, is the importance of the Passover. In fact, five times in just those few verses, the Passover is mentioned. It's as if Luke wants to make it abundantly clear that the Passover was of central and significant importance in the lives of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is intent on celebrating the Passover meal in this upper room with his disciples. And so the first thing we see is that the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper looks back. It looks back to Passover. So what is Passover? If you're not really familiar with the Bible and with the story of the Old Testament in particular, you might not know what that is. So let me briefly explain it. You can read about Passover in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 13, we read about the actual Exodus where God rescues the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. This is like the great redemptive act of the Old Testament. The act that all Jewish people, even to this day, look back on as the thing that formed them, the thing that formed them as a people. But the night before the Exodus, the night before God delivered Israel from Egyptian oppression, he commanded his people to celebrate a meal together in Exodus 12. This meal is called the Passover. And here's how it worked. Each family was to have a feast in their homes in which they would eat unleavened bread and a spotless clean, unblemished lamb. And they were also instructed by God to kill the Passover lamb and then to spread or daub the blood of the lamb over the top of their doors. And the reason they were to do this is because that night the Lord was going to pass through Egypt in judgment against Egypt. But if he passing over saw blood on the door of a home, Exodus 12 tells us the Lord would pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So Passover was something that commemorated what God was about to do in the Exodus. And God told the Israelites, celebrate this every single year. Make it a ritual. Make it a common practice in your life together. Because the Passover is a meal, a way in which I want you to remember and in which I want you to celebrate my delivery of you. The Passover celebrates God rescuing the people of Israel from their bondage and from their slavery in Egypt. It's a picture of the blood of the lamb covering the people. It's a picture of how blood must be shed for us to be forgiven. So God tells them, celebrate this year by year, forever. And that's what the disciples and Jesus are doing. They're celebrating the Passover meal. And by now, Israel has been doing this for centuries, right? And so here's how it would have gone on that night when Jesus is in the upper room. The presider, usually the head of the household, he would get up and he would pray and he would give thanks. And then the youngest child in the room, the youngest child seated at the table would ask a question. He would say, why is tonight different than all other nights? Why is tonight different than all the other nights? And then the presider would explain what I just explained. He would explain the meaning of the Passover. 
And usually he would use like Deuteronomy chapter 26, where we read, our forefathers were slaves, but God looked upon their affliction. Or Deuteronomy 16, this bread is the bread of our affliction. Now think about that in this context. Jesus is presiding over this meal. And Jesus picks up the bread, as was the custom, and he picks up the cup, and he begins to speak, but he says things, listen, he says things that must have absolutely astonished the disciples. He changes up the ritual. He changes up the liturgy. He says new things. Basically, he says, this is what Passover is really about. I am the lamb. The bread is my body. I'm going to eat the bread of affliction so that you can eat the bread of satisfaction. The cup, this cup is my blood, and I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you get the cup of salvation. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, he says. So Jesus is saying, the Lord's Supper is the new Passover. It's the fulfillment of the Passover. In the Old Testament, the Passover meal came the night before their deliverance from bondage in Egypt, right? And in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper, this last supper, comes the night before our deliverance from bondage. Not to the Egyptians, but from bondage to sin and death and darkness. Jesus is saying, I am the Passover lamb. My blood is going to be spread over your lives. And the Lord is going to pass over you and redeem you from your empty and hopeless way of life. In fact, this is really the clearest explanation that Jesus gives us in all the Gospels about the meaning of his death. The supper is a celebration of the central act of history, the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. So it looks back to Passover, and for us it looks backward to the cross. So what does that mean? It means for you that the Lord's Supper, when you come and take it, is an act of remembrance it's, it's a memorial. It's definitely more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. And it's celebrated regularly to remind us of what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has done for us at the cross. He's forgiven us of our transgressions. He's redeemed us from slavery to sin and to death. He has done it freely of his grace and mercy, not because we've deserved it or earned it, but because he is infinitely loving towards you, his people. You know, if you have school-age kids, uh, it's likely that at some point in their education, they're going to learn at least part of the Gettysburg Address. I mean, we probably learned this as kids, right? The Gettysburg Address is routinely reenacted in schools throughout the United States. Often we'll dress up as Abraham Lincoln and have our nice hats on, etc., etc., etc. Why do we do this? What's, what's the effect of this long-standing practice? Well, the, the effect is that it shapes generation after generation of young Americans. It reinforces American values, hopefully values of freedom and democracy. And that's how the Lord's Supper is intended to work for the church. Each time we participate in it, we're shaping those who are to come after us, and we're being shaped ourselves. We're being reminded of the cross. The table is its salvation enacted. It reminds us that our sin is atoned for that we are free, that we're acquitted, that we're adopted. So when you come to the table, when you come today in a few minutes, and when you come every week, come remembering and believing. Believe that you're loved by God and that God proved that love for you at the cross of Jesus. The table looks 
backward. The Lord's Supper also, secondly, looks downward. What do I mean? It looks downward in that it shows us that God is the one who initiates redemption. God comes down to us in the person of Jesus. The Lord's Supper shows us that God comes down and actually the Lord's Supper is, in a mysterious way, God coming down to continue to give us grace. Look at the story again. I mean, did you notice once you get to the Last Supper that Jesus is overseeing and Jesus is in control of everything that happens. Did you, did you notice that? He knows who the disciples should ask. He tells them exactly what to say. And when they sit down at the meal itself, look at what happened. Jesus is doing everything here. Even if you just look at the actual language, the subject of all the verbs, there in verse 19, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it, he said What that means is that it's Jesus who initiates. It's Jesus who blesses. It's Jesus who breaks. It's Jesus who gives himself as a gift to us at the supper. You could sum it up by saying that the host of this meal is Jesus. The host of this meal is Jesus. The supper's direction is downward. It is a meal from our saving host to us. Jesus says, take this, eat this, drink this. At the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, we are essentially receivers. At the heart of the gospel, we are essentially receivers. I'm reminded as I think about this of when our kids were very, very small and just getting to the point where they were starting to eat, you know, solid foods. And uh, as you know, as you parent your children as they begin to grow up, that is a moment of utter dependence on the part of your children. You set them in the chair and you hope you've strapped them in correctly so that they don't fall, which is always a challenge for the dads especially. And you give them their food and you cut up their food and you spoon their food into their mouths and you wipe their faces and then you change their diapers afterwards. You do everything for them. The children are, they're essentially receivers. You're cutting the food, you're feeding them the food, you're cleaning the food up after they eat. That's that's what the Lord's Supper is saying to us. Jesus is the one who does everything for us when it comes to salvation. Even the idea of the supper itself teaches us this. I mean, why does God ask us to eat and drink? Why do we ingest something as a sign of the downward mobility of God? The supper means that God wants to be close to us. That God wants to be Emmanuel. He wants to be near us. That's why he gives us something physical. physical, Something we can take in. Jesus doesn't say, tell each other about what I'm going to do for you. He wants us to do that. But he also wants us to literally take it in through food and through drink. The Lord's Supper is a physical extension of the spiritual proclamation of God's one way of salvation in Jesus. The Supper is like a a tactile, eatable, tasteable, smelling word. It's like after Jesus tells us that he loves us in the pulpit, he He touches us in love at the table. The sacraments, they're like God hugging us. They're like God hugging us. He doesn't just want to tell you how much he loves you. 
He wants to embrace you. He wants to embrace you with his love. That's why Jesus can say crazy things. Listen to what he says in John 6. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, how weird is that? Has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now that language, if nothing else, shows us. Listen, it shows us how entirely Jesus wants to become one with us. How much he loves us. Body and soul. Listen again to Henri Nouwen. He says, Jesus is God for us, God with us, God within us. Jesus is God giving himself completely, pouring himself out for us without reserve. Jesus doesn't hold back or cling to his own possessions. He gives all there is to give. Eat, drink, this is my body, this is my blood, this is me for you. Now, some of you, some of you, for various reasons, treat the Lord's Supper as if it's going upward from you to God, rather than as if the Lord's Supper is downward in its direction, God coming down to us. Some of us treat the Lord's Supper as if it's performing and not receiving. That's one of the big problems with uh, the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. They essentially see it as a sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is us offering something up to God. And we would differ with them on that. We would say, actually, it's the exact opposite. It's not a sacrifice. It's a sacrament. It's God offering himself to us and us remembering that and us receiving that in faith. But without thinking about it in theological terms, you can think about it more practically. Oftentimes, when you come to the table, you're thinking, I better get myself together. I better get myself together before I approach God. I better pull myself up by my bootstraps before I can be near to him. But what the supper really is, is is Jesus' gift to us. He is the one offering. We're merely receiving. Communion is not the place where we do things for God. It's the place where he does things for us. He gives, he blesses, he renews. That's why Christ tells the disciples to take He tells them to take, and he tells us to take, because he himself is the only one who offers. The supper looks backward. The supper looks downward. Third, the supper looks forward. Look at what Jesus says in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Again, verse 18. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So the Lord's Supper points us backward, right, as we've seen, backward to the cross to remember and believe, and it points us forward to the kingdom. It's asking us to wait and to hope in God's coming new world. What's Jesus referring to in these verses? He's referring to his own messianic banquet that he's going to throw, the big party he's going to have when we all get to heaven that the prophets talked about, and that Revelation, the last book of the Bible, talks about. It's called in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be the greatest party any of us have ever been to. Listen to how Revelation puts it. We read there, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright 
and pure. So what is the Lord's Supper doing when it's telling us to look forward? Jesus is going to win. Jesus is going to win. That's what the Lord's Supper is saying. Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to resurrect this dead world just like he has been resurrected. The Lord's Supper then looks forward to the things, to the way things really should be and to the the way things one day will be. It looks forward to when Jesus is going to right every wrong, when he's going to fulfill all of our hopes, when all evil and pain is going to be stomped out of existence forever. The theologian Peter Lightheart puts it this way, the Eucharist is our model of the final order. It's a microcosm of the way things really ought to be. And so, let me talk to you practically. Because the Lord's Supper is an anticipation of heaven, an anticipation of the feast of God, of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we are to celebrate. We're to celebrate it. The Lord's Supper is not a funeral service. It's not a memorial because Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not buried in the ground still. He's been raised to life. He's our living hope. And one day he's coming back. So listen, Presbyterians, there's a reason to be happy. There's a reason for joy and for gladness. I mean, Jesus says, listen to the words he uses. I have earnestly desired, deeply desired to eat this meal with you. Verse 15. Why? Here's why. Because heaven is most like a meal with your closest friends. Heaven is most like a meal with your closest friends. That's a a picture of what this world will one day be. Jesus says, I want to eat this meal with you before I suffer. He's saying, one day we will all be in glory, in perfect happiness as friends together, but first I must suffer. And you know what? First we must suffer. We follow the path that Jesus himself went on. So the Lord's Supper is a place where we can come rejoicing even though we feel like garbage. The Lord's Supper is a place where what Paul says in Romans 8 kind of comes to light. Listen to what Paul writes. He says that we are heirs with Christ. You're an heir with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So when you come to the table, your posture at the table is to come in celebration even in the middle of suffering. And Jesus meets us here and restores us here and fulfills us here and he gives us courage here and he gives us strength here. So listen, practically, listen. When you're hurting, when you're weak, when you're worn out, when you're frail, when, when you're confused, when, when you're dying, literally dying, when you see your need and when you see all the obstacles stacked against you, Christ bids you, he compels you, he beckons you to come to him here, to receive his love, to do what he tells us to do in John 6, to feed on him by faith and to wait and to hope. The party is about to get started. You can believe that when things are hard now. Lastly, the supper looks outward. Notice also that this is a meal This is a meal, very clearly, that Jesus shares with his disciples, right? Jesus shares this meal with his people. That was its design. And that was the design and is the design for communion as well. 
at the table, we commune, we commune with Jesus by His Spirit together. We commune with Jesus with one another. The image of the Lord's Supper is is one of a, a community meal of everyone seated at a table, formed into the image of Jesus together. And listen, we need that in our culture. Think about what a lot of your meals are like. Hurried. Rushed. Taco Bell in the car, driving south on I-35. Don't do that, by the way. Bad idea. That's what a lot of our, our meals are like. It's the spirit of this age. We eat alone and we eat in a hurry. But this is a meal designed to be eaten together in love. You know, side note, it's actually unfortunate that we don't have an actual meal at the Lord's Supper. You can figure out how to do that. Come talk to me. I'm yet to figure that out. This is not a meal. It's the best we can do. It's not a meal. Uh, The church historically, almost certainly for the first few centuries of the church, had an actual meal. If you read Acts, it's very evident that that's what they're doing. Maybe it would be a great countercultural move for us as Americans to move back towards that. But I'm not sure how to do it. So you can help me if you have any ideas. But why? Why is it that communion is to be celebrated in the context of community? Why is it that when we eat, we, we look up to God and we also look outward at each other? Here's why. Because communion is not designed to be just formative for you. Communion is not about your individual relationship with Jesus. It's not. Communion is formative for the people of God. Plural. Think back to Passover, which we see communion is the New Testament equivalent of. If you read about Passover, what did God tell the Israelites to do again and again and again? To teach this to who? your kids. Teach this to your children. Share this meal with your children. Write it on the doors of your house. Make it a key part of the formation of your family. Communion is the same way. We're participants at the table together. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he says this, listen, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation communion with, fellowship with, the blood of Jesus. The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Listen, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's meant to be an image of the body united together in all of its glorious diversity. We do something at the table. We ingest something. We eat and we drink and we do it together. I was reading this week, there's a lot of scientific research that's being done. I found one article of a piece of research that was done by Stanford Children's Hospital, basically proving scientifically this phrase that we've all heard, the family that eats together stays together, right? The family that eats together stays together, and they provide multiple pieces of scientific research and give all kinds of evidence for um, the fact that it's better for the emotional and physical and psychological health of your children to eat meals, especially dinner, together around a table. The point of that article and the many others that I saw is that meals form us as families into the people that we will one day be. They do. And communion is the same for the church. It is formative for us. By the way, that's the main reason we want our children in here for communion. It's the main reason. Um, almost every child 
that we've ever had come to faith at Christ Church, which is dozens at this point, dozens of them, almost universally, the elders can attest to this along with me, the impetus for their wanting to come to faith and express, I love Jesus, I believe I am a sinner, he died on the cross for me, he was raised from the dead, I want to give my life to him, is communion, almost universally. They come forward, they see the family, the family eating together, and they think, I'm a part of the family, I want to be with the family, I want the meal that the family shares, I want to be a part of this. It's an amazing impetus, it's almost as if like the Holy Spirit designed it that way. It's almost that way, amazingly. So you're literally teaching to your children. You're forming your children when you bring them into worship. That's why we end Kids Quest early and we bring all the kids back in here and they're loud and they're making noise and they're stomping back in while I'm trying to finish the sermon. That's good. That's great. We're for that. We love that. And we want them to come forward and experience the rhythm of life with God's people because they are literally being formed. And doing it over and over and over again is habit forming. Participation in communion, in, in the drama of the Lord's Supper, is it's how we learn and relearn our roles in life with God. It's how we learn the habits of spiritual life and cross-centered living. Ten years ago, uh, January 15, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 left LaGuardia Airport. And uh, very early after takeoff, it ran into a, a flock of geese and lost all power in both engines. And uh, they're flying over Manhattan, so it's a pretty tense situation. And the captain, the pilot of the flight, Captain Chelsea Sullenberger, managed famously now to land the plane on the Hudson River with no one killed. And Sully, of course, had no time to like consult a manual or discuss his options in detail with his co-pilot. What enabled him to pull off such a dramatic landing was years of experience. It was habits that in the moment of crisis, he had learned and kicked in, and the pilot brought everyone down safely. Listen, participating in worship, participating in communion is habit-forming. In a similar way, you don't just wake up one day being a Christian strong enough to handle all of life's adversity. You don't. You need to be formed. You need to develop habits. And the way you do that is by repeating the same things over and over, just like a pianist, just like an athlete. And so when you come, you're forming yourself to help in the moment of spiritual crisis, which, friends, it's coming. It's coming. Would you like be any different if we stopped celebrating the Lord's Supper? The answer is yes. The Supper is one of the key ways Jesus explains the meaning of his death. So it teaches us. It's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit fellowships with us. So it, it grows us. It's one of the ways our church family is formed in faith and in love. So it equips us. And it's one of the ways we're called week in and week out to repentance and to faith together as Christ's body. So it unites us. You know, the, the holidays are coming up, hard to believe. And uh, it's fun as your family grows and develops to establish and develop family rituals, family traditions that you celebrate every year at the holiday season. Those are important because those help your family, your children, learn how to express gratitude. They help your family begin to display love towards one another in new ways. They help grow us as a family together. This 
This is our family meal. It's our tradition. It's our ritual. It's not ritualistic, but it is a ritual. It's not traditionalism, but it is a tradition that over centuries has formed God's people to fight the fight of faith and to keep in step with the Spirit as the evil one attempts to take us down. He's coming for you. So come to the table. Remember and believe that Christ died for you. He's for you and with you here and now, no matter what you're facing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.